Hi, loves. Thanks for joining us for episode 36 of Sheer Crime. I'm Kenzie. And I'm Amy. This week, we are covering the Netflix documentary, Tread. This case stunned the nation and the world in June 2004 when Marv Hemeyer modified a bulldozer to resemble a tank in hopes of destroying the town he lived in. Having only been a resident in Granby, Colorado for a little over a decade, Marv constantly felt that everyone voted against him or were determined to make his life miserable. Feeling as though he was being forced to jump through too many hoops while having his own concerns fall on deaf ears, Marv had enough. He secretly built this behemoth of a contraption for months on end while always holding firm that this is what God wanted him to do. Although this episode is not about a murder, it is about a crime that intrigued many because it was something that had never been seen or heard of before. This is so weird. It I'm just weird. not used to this recording schedule. I feel like I'm missing something on those bye weeks. <laughs> yeah, and they feel like they're going like really fast, right? Well, it feels like when I'm doing my notes that it, it's only a week time frame like it normally is. But it's right. because we're busy all the time. We always have something going on during yes. the week and the weekend. So yes. it makes sense, but it's still weird. Well, and let's be honest, we're not actually taking these notes for two weeks long. <laughs> We're still only doing it in the week. <laughs> we always wait until like the Monday before we record to start I our notes. I finished five minutes before you came over today. <laughs> That's where I'm at this week. I did a little bit better this week with my notes and was able to finish on Tuesday night instead of Wednesday night. So a day. Yeah. A day beforehand, which no, is, you had which a is day. good. <laughs> yeah. No, this week has been very busy for me. And we had a couple of like last minute things kind of pop up where it was like, uh, yeah, let's take advantage of going and doing something. Yeah. And I've had, I've only worked two and a half days this week. Yeah. Nice. So that also like on my days off, why would I do this? Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. No, I know how that is, but I'm glad we're back. We are yes. doing tread this week, which was actually something that your brother had recommended us do. Yeah. My brother brought it up like right away when you and I were talking about this. Yeah. I can't even remember when this was, but he had come over for dinner one night and I was explaining to him our podcast and, like, what we do. And he was talking about this documentary. Yeah. And I was like, I've never even heard of it. And I still, like, in the back of my head, I remembered, but I never watched it. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't on my radar for whatever reason until I, you brought it up. Yeah, I think my parents told me about it because I hadn't even – it wasn't on, like, the Rolodex for, like, Netflix. No. When you're looking at documentaries, I never even saw it. Or maybe I just didn't notice it. Yeah. But then when my parents told me to watch it, I was like, ooh, it was – very intriguing, very different. I very mean, different. Something that you've never even heard of happen before. It's bizarre. It doesn't even seem real. Right. So I'm excited to dive into this today with you. Yeah. Now, today you are drinking. I have got a plethora of things <laughs> going on here. It's one of those days. I'm nearing the end. Kenzie, I, I am you are very close, Amy. Baby Gabriel's coming. I have three and a half weeks left till due date. Yep. I have this weird feeling we're not going to make it that long. I don't know why. 
I just have this feeling. Mommy instinct. There are too many things happening recently. I start, I was telling you, I started like back pain today, yeah. which I never had with my daughter. So I'm like, of course, convinced I'm going into labor at any moment. Yeah, sure. I'm pretty sure I woke up with a contraction last night in the middle of the night. Wow. I mean, I'm just like, okay, what is going on here? He's coming. So we'll see. That being said, all I had upstairs that was like a pop top was a LaCroix, but it's like too much. My stomach has no room for anything right now. Yep. I know exactly how that feeling is. Right. So it's just like, I can't think of something with carbonation because I feel like Oh, yeah, it's too much. It's way too much. It makes you bloaty, too. Well, and I feel like it would just be coming up, to be mm-hmm. honest, because my stomach is, like, right below my larynx. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right now. <laughs> just right there. Yeah. It's like my heart and my stomach. They're, like, They're right next to each other. side by side. Yeah. And my lungs are in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. But I'm not Somehow. quite sure where. Right. They might be in my shoulders at this point. <laughs> That's how I'm feeling. So... I grabbed one of my daughter's Gatorades because I was like, I need some energy. Mm-hmm. Not that there's like energy in it, but it, there's sugar, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's tons of it sugar. It looks really good, to be honest. I haven't had one of those in a very long time. Got to have it on hand. And then I also have my giant jug of water. Yes. Because I have not had enough today. Yes. That's usually how I am, too. Yeah. I just, I don't know. It's well, a thing. What did you bring? So. Yours looks more fun. We, well, we went through a lot this weekend. It was 4th of July this past oh, weekend. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So we brought a lot of our stuff up north, so we didn't have much in our fridge. But I did have one of those, the punch packs for Truly. Oh, yeah, left. yeah. You got that think, a little while ago. Yep, and I think I had two of them in here, and I don't think I've had this flavor yet. It's the citrus punch one. I don't remember seeing this can. No, and I when I even bought the pack, I don't even think I had any to try either. I think I only had the berry one and the fruit punch one. So yeah, I'm excited to try the citrus. yeah. Well, you'll have to like shake your water bottle or something, or shake your, my tail feathers. Or <laughs> I got ice; that'll make a sound. Yes, your ice. Yep. Here we go. All right. Woohoo! Wow, I was not expecting that. Yeah, I don't even know what that tastes like. Let me smell it. It is. Wow. It is weird. It tastes like hard alcohol and so like Bacardi. I smell a hard alcohol. Doesn't it smell like Bacardi? Yeah. That's what I'm getting. Like a Bacardi Limon. Oh my God. I'm getting a little bit of a scent of Bacardi Limon. Yeah. It's making me gag a little bit. I can't stand that. Oh shit. no. Okay. Well, don't think about that. Is it okay. sweeter than that though? Yes. So I think it's more so the smell. It doesn't necessarily taste like a lemon. I don't know. It's weird. Without further ado, let's start off this episode. I'll let you start off, Amy, with our intro to Tread. All right. So in the beginning of the documentary, we and throughout the documentary, I should say, we hear a lot. I mean, a lot of recordings from Marv Haymeyer throughout the entire documentary. It's really interesting. And it's like an old tape recorder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, No, it's like what you would like record your favorite songs off of the radio on. When you're my age, you're looking at me like you have no idea what I'm saying. No, uh, totally. No. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, like late 90s, early 2000s. Yes. That's what you had to do. Yes. You hit play and record yep, at would, the same time you, on your boombox. Yeah. Yeah. To record a song on the radio. You wait all day for that song to play <laughs> because there was no such thing right. as Spotify or right. Pandora. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very old school. It sounds a little distant. So who knows what he was actually recording on. And surprisingly enough, they only shared with us probably a very small portion of his tapes. I'm sure there was hours upon hours upon hours 
of him talking because oh, yeah. he was basically telling us his whole entire life story. So there's a few times we'll share with you what he stated, but we're not going to do it throughout the whole oh my God. documentary. We no. can't. We I don't, don't have, have time. Carpal tunnel trying to write <laughs> that shit down. No, a lot. It's ramblings of a man all alone mm-hmm. with a recorder. Yep. Is what it is. Thankfully, a lot of it still kind of makes sense, but it is, after all, ramblings of a man all alone right. with a recorder. Yep. So I did write down a little bit of the first recording that we hear. And the recording says, Hello, my name is Marvin Haymeyer. Today is April 13th, 2004. I want to say right now, God bless me in advance for the task that I'm about to undertake. Again, I sampled from that because it was much more long-winded than that. I didn't even write it down. All I said, he starts telling us his life story and the steps he took to pull this whole crime off. That's what he does. Yes. (laughs) We meet Patrick Brower. He is from Sky High News in Granby, and he worked there from about 1979 until 2007. And he is one of our main narrators in this documentary. We hear a lot from Patrick. Yes, yes. He says that Marv was actually from South Dakota. He had served in the Air Force and had been stationed in Colorado. He had a knack for welding. And in 1991, he had found a cozy little tree lot with two cabins on it and a beautiful view and decided to buy it. After that point, Marv works at a local muffler shop and eventually opens up his own shop due to his quick success. So he is known for his welding and his muffler work. Yes, very good at what he does. Patrick also speculates that he probably counted pennies, and that's what led to his ability to run a successful business because he was not just throwing money around as if it didn't add up. Right. He kind of reminded me of my grandpa in that sense when they were talking about like him being a miser with his money. Yeah. Totally reminded me of my grandpa. Oh, or my dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or my dad. No yeah. joke. My sister and I were talking about the time... I had asked him for a pack of gum at the grocery store. And my dad looked at me and he's like, we don't have a coupon for that. Yep. And I was like, you just spent $150 on a fishing reel. Mm-hmm. But I can't have they, a pack of gum. Yep. They they pretend they don't have money. Yes. When they have a lot A of lot money. of money. <laughs> yes. And we hear in one of the recordings, Marv State, something to the effect of, if you have a champagne income with a beer taste, you're going to do well in life. Yep. So, I mean, yeah, exactly. I love that saying. It's usually the opposite for many people, though. The beer income with the champagne taste. With the champagne taste, yeah. (laughs) For sure. Next, we meet Glenn Trainer. He is one of the undersheriffs at Grand County. Actually, he worked there from 1993 until 2004. And he had knew of Marv through his muffler shop and had actually had some work done by him. Again, Marv was known for his welding. And this is a small town. Very small so town. So if you live in this area, you kind of shop everywhere in town. That's right. where you go. You don't really go out of town to, to get this stuff done. So that totally made sense. Yeah. And he says that Marv was a real outdoorsman. He loved to snowmobile. And he seemed to be one of those guys that was liked by everybody. We also meet Trisha McDonald. She was the former girlfriend of Marv's. She said that she had met him at the Lariat Saloon in Grand Lake, Colorado. She hadn't dated in about five years, but felt an instant connection when she met Marv. She said that he was very, quote unquote, old school, very confident, had kind of a larger than life personality, but she felt really safe with him. 
She said that he had actually only met her children once and he had had none of his own, but they had done a few road trips together and had really enjoyed adventure. You could tell when she was talking, she, it almost looked like she was holding back tears a bit because I I think they had a really great relationship when they did. And she was totally in the dark about what was happening. She didn't know that this was going to occur previously. She had no prior knowledge. And so I think it even shocked her to what extent he could go to. I agree. That's exactly the tone I got. From it was kind of well. sad, like watching her and like it really always looked like she was holding back tears. And it's like, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. And but why also did it sound like she had like an accent from like Great yeah. Britain or something? Yeah, I was she like, did. where are you from, Trisha McDonald? Because <laughs> that ain't no Colorado I slang. Yep. Next, we meet Stuart Spencer. Now, he was kind of the best friend or like big brother almost to Marv Haymeyer. And he was what was known as one of the Thursday crew riders. So he was in this group that Marv would get together with on Thursdays to go snowmobiling in the mountains. He said that they got together every week and they would go on this ride that would usually be between four to up to 24 riders at one time. I found that really interesting because all I thought about was how are these people getting off work every week on Thursday? I mean, like, it's Colorado. Like, are they moving their work day to a different day during the week? So I'm like, I'm, I don't think people get that many days off a year. In my mind, these are all like business owners. That's what I was thinking, too. So they probably just take it off or have someone cover the shift on that day when they're gone. Right. Right. Or they just kind of close up shop maybe early that day. That makes sense. Yeah. Maybe they close it at like two instead of five. That makes sense. That would give them plenty of daylight, I would think. We also meet another crew member from this Thursday group, Matt Reed. Now, he was only 16 when he started riding with them. He said everybody else in the group was like in their 40s or 50s. So he couldn't, you know, partake with any drinking with them. But he basically had Marv take him under his wing and had taught Matt how to ride and how to work on snowmobiles. He said that Marv would craft glove warmers and grills for the rides using his welding experience. That's so awesome. I know. And then he had fitted the whole crew with what they called Marv bumpers. And basically, these were bumpers that he fitted to the front of the snowmobiles to help take down the little four and five inch trees that are kind of sprouting out of the snow. Yeah. To just kind of level them so that you could go right over top. Trisha even comes back and tells us that Marv had bought her her first Polaris and had taught her how to ride off trail in case she ever had that happen. Mm -hmm. She knew how to maneuver the sled back onto the trail. Right. And you could tell that a lot of these people really cared for him. Oh, yeah. It was almost like he was a dad for some of these people, you know, and took care of them and made sure everyone was doing well and had everything that they needed. And it didn't seem like he charged anyone for these things he made for them. He just made them so they could be safe. You know what I mean? I do know what you mean. (laughs) Glenn comes back on and tells us that Grand County at one time was considered kind of the wild, wild west, if you can imagine. And it had been modernized over the course of time, but it's not uncommon in the winter to have about a two-week straight kind of stint where the temperature is only 10 degrees or below, to which I wrote, that's it? I literally... We can go a I'm whole like, month below zero hello, in Minnesota. <laughs> polar vortex, anybody? <laughs> I was like, okay. And the way he said it, he sounded very proud of the fact that they yeah. make it through that. And I'm like. <laughs> and I laughed. I, I know, me laughed. too. 
You don't even know. Y'all so cute up there on the mountain (laughs) acting like you're all cold and shit. We have negative 45 degree wind chill here. Yeah. And we still survive somehow. And we still send our kids to school. (laughs) (laughs) That's even though that's the best part, right? We we just still don't care. They're like, kids, you got to go to school. Just make sure you bundle up a little extra. Yep. Yep. Oh, and you might have indoor recess today. (laughs) But he does say that being that this is a small town, you do learn to kind of do without, you know, quite a few things. Small town life means everybody will know your business, which I can relate to. I Mm -hmm. grew up in a small town. And of course, there can be some conflict because everybody knows your business. Marv originally bought the muffler shop property at a public auction for foreclosed properties. He had found this property that had about a 3,000 square foot building on it, had two acres of land, and he got it for like $40,000. So that's like cheap as shit. That is really, really cheap. I'm just thinking like the building alone. Right. That's a huge building. I mean, okay, so we don't really know what real estate is like in small towns. I'm sure it's a lot different. I'm sure everything's a lot cheaper because there's not a lot of people that want to live in small towns, right? Right. They want a little a little bit closer, or just suburbs at least, where they can get to things a little bit faster. So that kind of made sense. But later on, we find out what he sells it for, and he makes a huge profit. Oh, God, So yeah. I wish we had a little bit more to this background as to why it was that way, and maybe just because it was at an auction. I think it was because it was foreclosed on. Yeah, and they needed someone to buy the property because the bank yeah. didn't want it anymore. Yeah, you why know? would they want it? And they didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. We do find out that Marv was actually in what we hear is like a bidding war at this auction between himself and the owner of Mountain Park Concrete, Cody Docheff. So it sounds like Marv finally outbid him and got this property for the 40 grand. Patrick Brower comes back and tells us that the Docheffs were looking for some land to put their concrete operation home base at, basically. Mm-hmm with an indoor batch plant so that they could make batches of concrete at the same time. Cody had showed up to the auction with Gus Harris, and basically it was kind of thought that Gus was the one who was sponsoring the financials behind this decision and that he wasn't going to go and spend more than like $50,000 for this property, which is how Marv claims he was the one that won in this bidding war. Right. Marv also stated in one of his rants on his tape that he had been basically verbally accosted by Cody Dolchev shortly after the auction. We hear the voice of Marv come in saying about Cody that he is, quote, just the rudest, most arrogant person. I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole, end quote. These are the types of quotes we're going to get from Marv. Mm, yeah. Yep. He's very opinionated. <laughs> but he states that Cody had come over to him and given him like a 10-minute long tongue lashing over winning this property, apparently. That best friend of Marv's, Stuart Spencer, says that he really loves this area and he likes to refer to it as God's country. But he doesn't always agree with how the county is ran because he does feel like it's a bit of a good old boys club. You're kind of, you know, you're friends with everybody on the board. You get what you want. Yeah. If you're not part of the group, you're shit out of luck. I feel like that happens a lot more than we think it does. Oh, I think it happens a lot. Especially in small towns, because most of those people grew up there their whole lives. So, like, their parents know each other, and their parents know each other. And a lot of this land and a lot of these businesses were handed down to these kids that are now adults that are now running this this city. So I do think that that happens a lot. And since Marv was an outsider, 
he probably immediately felt like, holy shit, I don't really fit in with these people. Yeah, it's like, hard yeah. to fit in, you know, because yeah. I did not grow up here and this is a, a new place for me. Yeah. Patrick explains to us that when Mar first bought this property, he only had a concrete mixing tank that he was using to hold sewage. Now, in the summer of 1992, the board wanted him to be annexed into the water and sanitation district, and he had assumed that it would all just kind of go through, mm-hmm. right? So they want him in. He figured he'd sign some shit, and they would hook him up, and he'd be good to go. Yeah. We meet Ben McClelland, who really is only in this documentary for, like, a minute and a half, but his, like, title is Attorney and Grand County Rodeo Rider. <laughs> Which I thought was great. You can be whatever you want to be. You can be whatever you want in Granby, Colorado. (laughs) He tells us that at the time, Ron Thompson had been on the board for the sewer district. And that Ron had been pretty outspoken and may have said some things during these meetings to upset Marv. But basically, it turned out that the closest sewer main to... Marv's property was several hundred yards away from the actual property and could cost Marv upwards of $60,000, or $80,000 to be connected to. And Marv was pissed. I mean, that's a lot of money. And we find out that basically they make you pay to be hooked up, even if you don't really want to be hooked up to that. Marv refused to do it, didn't want to spend that kind of money on it. And he couldn't understand why they were denying him access to their sanitation district when it should have been a little bit closer. Yeah, that I don't know how all of that stuff works, but that seemed weird. I mean, if you have a business that you're you're bringing in money for the city to you're paying taxes or whatever, you know, like that just seems like a lot. $80,000 because they'd literally have to what they were showing us and kind of graphing to us is that he'd have to cut into like the cement and the streets to hook up to this main that was hundreds of feet away. Right. And that's where all the money was coming from. They weren't going to pay for that. But there had to be a different area, right? There was other businesses over there. It was really, it was really weird. Well, my other question is, what was this property prior to him buying it that it wasn't already hooked up to that? Right, because it had this building there, so someone right. must have been there previously yeah. doing something. What was it? Just an empty pole bar? Who knows? That it was. It was weird, and that honestly would piss me off too. Oh, I never like being told what to do, and I especially don't want to be told that I have to do it. Yeah. Plus, I have to pay for it. Right. Fuck you. Well, and when you have your own business, it's like people don't just have eighty thousand dollars laying around for a fucking water main or sewer line to be hooked up, right. like. You don't have that, especially in a small town like that. People don't have that that kind of money just lying around to throw around, you know? Exactly. Patrick explains to us that the Thompson family was actually kind of considered a Granby legacy family. They were wealthy. They were a working family in the Granby area. They had made a lot of money off of excavation, but they also owned a ton of land in the area. So they were making residual income off of all of that as well. They almost seem like the owners of the town. That's what they made me. See. Almost like the the settlers. Yes. It made me feel like they were the starters yeah. of this town because they owned so much yeah. of the town. Yeah. They said that they had owned a bunch of lodging properties because, of course, this is up in the mountains, but also little properties throughout town as well. So, yeah, they. I mean, could you imagine making that kind of money? And 
as an outsider coming in, that would be really intimidating. Oh, yeah. To be against people like that and not be on their good graces. Right. Like, that would be scary. That, that would be, be hard scary. to live in a town like that. Yeah. We find out that the Thompsons also owned this excavation company called Thompson & Sons Excavation, which I always love when that's the name of whatever your company is. Because <laughs> I'm like, really? They can't think of a better like, name. Like, you literally took no time <laughs> to just try to think of something. Nope. Nope. That's it. Keep it simple. Yep. It's always such and such and sons. Yep. <laughs> and co. And co. <laughs> Ron Thompson became the leading son in the family Larry was the older son who kind of helped out, and Gary assisted as well. Now, Ron Thompson was the one that was on the board, and Larry and Gary actually kind of end up running this concrete business. Yep. Now, in Marv's eyes, they were the epitome of Gramby's establishment that did everything they could to basically keep the man down. So Marv decided... He was going to make lemonade out of lemons and do his best to fit in because he made a good income and he was enjoying his life for the most part. We're now at the summer of 1999. We meet Dick Brody, who was on the Granby Town Board from 1995 to 2001. He explains that they did get opposition towards the concrete plant during these public hearings. And there were people there that were for it, but there were lots of people that spoke out against it, too. Patrick Brower says that Marv did a great job at getting people on his side in regards to this concrete plant, and Marv felt it would hurt his business. There would be dust everywhere with lots of noise and additional traffic. Because this batch plant that they want to create is literally next door. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it's almost on the same south. piece of land. Yep, it's, of it's, the muffler shop. It's very, very close. So this is why Marv is so against it. Yeah. Um. Side note, what is going on with Dick's side brown? <laughs> <laughs> that's better that's better because they look like eyebrows i know it's like oh my god it's like what is that called where it's like the chin strap but it's yeah. not a chin strap and it's also kind of like the mutton chops but it's not a mutton chop <laughs> this guy okay the one thing they don't have in Granby is a barber no they don't <laughs> guy this Holy guy was something else fuck i couldn't <laughs> stop staring at it i just didn't look at him it was so bad honest. i looked at him for a second and, and i'm was like, like a soul patch yep yep <laughs> there's too much there's too much confusion going on in his so face. much going on so many yeah no there was no no too much too much it, that's enough dick it looked like a map that's enough dick <laughs> said nobody <laughs> I did it again. I but put in, my foot in my mouth. In this case, well, at least you didn't put the dick in your mouth. <laughs> yes, in this case, there was way too much going on. Way too much. Patrick goes on to say that he was able to get quite a few people from the neighborhood to come and say that they did not want this concrete plant to move forward. This went on for about five meetings with lots of discussions, but at the end, they did approve the concrete plant, but with many conditions associated with it. Well, yeah. So Which they makes listened, sense. yeah, to an extent. Now, at that approval meeting, Marv was there and told him that he would fight them the whole way. And on top of this, the town is cracking down on Marv on this water and sewage issue. So not only did they not listen to him and approve this concrete batch plant, they're still trying to get him to pay for this water and sewage hookup. 
Marv ended up needing to go to court over this, and they decided that he wasn't going to be able to use his property for anything until he was hooked up to water and sewage. So now they're stopping his business and right. his money flow. If he wasn't pissed already, now he's really Now he's pissed. raging. He is really mad. Matt Reed, that younger rider he rides with on Thursdays, tells us that he is now forced to connect, but it's about 400 feet away. There could be property in the way. And there was. Now it belonged to Cody Docheff because they passed his batch plan. Right. And now he needed to get an easement from his arch enemy, Cody, and Cody wouldn't give it to him. Yeah. Can you imagine the frustration? Okay. So if he would have done it right away, yep. spent the $80,000, right, to get him hooked up, wouldn't have had an issue. Wouldn't right? have had an issue. He didn't want to spend that money. Now Cody owns the property next to him that he would need to dig up in order to put, you know, this hookup line in. And now he can't get the easement and he can't do it at all. So now he can't work anymore. He can't do this sewerage hookup. So now he's indefinitely not going to be able to work at this air. Oh, my God. Why does the term you snooze, you lose pop into my head right yeah. now? Oh, I'm sure. It's kind of like you sat on it yeah. until it was no longer an option. And now you're fucked three ways from Sunday. Right. And that, now now what do you do? Now what can you do? I mean, you'd probably have to try and sue or something to get this easement, right? I, I don't know what you would do in that situation. Or make friends. Right. Bake him a pie or something, Marv. Be nice. Just be, be nice. nice. You have to, like, you know, kiss some ass kiss now. Kiss a little ass. Pucker up. Yeah. Put on a little bit of lip Unfortunately, snackers. Marv is not the kind of person that would ever do that, though. No. We get that impression a lot through his recordings. He would never do something like that. No. The town contacted Marv and told him that they were going to fine him $100 a day because he was operating a business while not hooked up to the sewer line. So on top of everything else, now he's going to get a daily fine of $100 because he's still not hooked up. This would piss me off. I could not even imagine. Yeah. It's a, it's a little comical. It's a little comical that it's just like one thing after another. It's like never ending. Yeah. But it's still kind of sad, too. Like when it rains, it pours. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this was a shit storm. Right. So Marv needed to send this check in for this fine, right? All these fines he was getting. He did send in a check for $3,351. But made sure he didn't forget to put on the memo line, cowards and liars department. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, it's such a petty thing to do. But he's like, I'm I'm going to get him in some way. I have to I have to have someone read this and, and see what I wrote. I honestly <laughs> feel like this is something my mom would do. <laughs> like if given the chance, it's one of those things where it's kind of like a little fuck you yep. to them. Yeah. But in a way that it can't really come back. Yeah. Yeah. To get you. you no, know what I, I mean? Because really, who gives a shit what they write on the they, memo They line? still get the money. They can they still, still cash the money. The they still cash it. They don't care. Well, in a weird turn of events, the town sends back the check for an incorrect amount. Oh, my God. Now, this has Marv real pissed, okay? Like, in Marv's mind, this was just another example of not being treated fairly in this town. Now, Patrick tells us that the Dochev's proposal was moving forward, but Marv showed up with an attorney saying, I think that we've caught you in a mistake. The board was stunned. They had never had anyone come up against them and tell them that they were wrong and that they weren't going to be able to move forward with something. Or that they missed something. Right. So the board immediately kicked everyone out and called an executive session and said they are putting everything on hold until they can decide what to do. 
The attorney made sure they dotted all of their I's and crossed all of their T's, so they needed to be sure they were right on the money with everything that they were writing down. So they didn't run into any issues or legal issues, ethical issues. Right. The board decided to start over to ensure that they did it right. And as a last resort, Mara filed a lawsuit in district court. The Dolchefs did not care. They pretended as if there were no barriers and went forward with the production of this plan. How can they do that? How is that legal? Like, they, they didn't even sign it yet. They didn't even sign. Like, yes, they said that it's approved, but they haven't actually signed it yet. Right. Now it's going back. How the hell are they still able to get onto that piece of land and start doing whatever the hell they want to and do? And start build? building. How? Yeah. What the hell? And that, again, I think that kind of comes down to favoritism a little bit. And they're like, yeah. well, it's probably going to get passed either way because we don't really think we screwed up. So go ahead. Go ahead, Cody. Just start doing what you're doing. Yeah. Oh, I would be pissed. That would piss me off. It would piss me off. On top of everything else. Right. At the same time, if it didn't pass, they would right. be out all that money. Right. And time. So I don't know. I think I think they had an inkling that it was going to go forward either way. There Maybe. had to be something that they just knew. Yeah. This is when Marv started watching. He started watching what was going on, started watching this batch plant, like, come up and build up. And he started plotting. This yeah. is when his whole plotting and revenge plan started. His friend Stuart said that Marv was putting all of his money into this and just getting shut down at every corner because he's putting in thousands of dollars at this point for these lawsuits and everything right. else. He's putting in lots of money. And he knows he had about 150000 grand into it at one point. Uh, he could have fucking paid $80,000 to have that fucking sewer and water line hooked up and still have his business. But no, like, that would require him to eat his hat and just do what they told him to do. He'd have to apologize, right? And he's not he, going to do that. <laughs> well, nine months later, the court ruled on behalf of the county and dismissed the lawsuit. Now Marv really felt like he had no one on his side. Yeah. We get a little bit of Marv's recordings, and he tells us that they had been gunning for him since 1992 when they kept him off the sanitation district. Then when Gus sold the property to Cody, they got him when they issued the building permit to Cody for the concrete plant, but denied it was for the concrete plant. And he is quoted as saying in the recording, I'd shoot the truth in their face and they couldn't deal with it. And I'm sorry, they're going to have to deal with it. I guarantee you I am going to make them deal with it. End quote. He's stern. He is stern and he's pissed. And he's like, I already have a plan. So even though everything has not went my way, something will go my way. And I can guarantee you of that. I think it's hilarious that you and I have written down the same quotes <laughs> with how much he speaks in this documentary. Like how? That's funny. We've, Mine was almost verbatim yep, of what you just said. Yep. We have the same notes, Amy. We have the same brain. Well, then why are we both taking time to do these notes every week? We should just one person do them, print them off for the next. Here you go. His girlfriend, Trish, said that they had talked about these issues in Granby together. Obviously, they were boyfriend and girlfriend. Right. They're going to have those conversations. Yeah. But she never got the feeling that he was super angry and never really realized how distorted all of this had become for him. Yeah. So he obviously wasn't obsessed with it while in the presence of her. Right. He must have pretended that... You know, he's upset, but not that upset. Right. Marv was simply defeated, humiliated, and basically at his wit's end. And he really didn't know what else to do. 
we get another Marv recording. And he tells us that while in his hot tub one night weeping, a sense of peace came over him and he knew that he needed to do this and that God wanted him to do it. He wished there was another way to do it, but there was no other way to, quote, make this right, end quote. See, this is where the hot tub time machine would have come in really well. <laughs> yes. God, I love that movie. I that haven't seen that movie. It's so good. <laughs> but like oh. this guy. He needs some friends. He does. I mean, he's a really lonely guy. He has his girlfriend, Trish, but they do not live together. Or That's my assumption. Yeah, it didn't sound like they did. It seems like they hang out a lot, but he's definitely a loner. He doesn't have, like, he doesn't even have family there. Again, he moved here. He has didn't grow up here. So he does. it's not like he has family members to, to hang out with or anything like that. And he doesn't have kids. Yeah. And it's Colorado in the mountains. Like, who yeah. wouldn't want a friend with a hot tub? Yeah. And it's isolated. I mean, it seemed like where he lived was kind of isolated. Yeah. Patrick tells us that the point of views were different about what happened after Marv got the land. Because remember, Marv tells us that they had this altercation. Cody just gave him a tongue lashing for 10 minutes because he never got the land, right? That was Marv's account of that. Right. Now, Cody says he doesn't even think he even met Marv down there then, that him and Gus just got up and walked out right after the auction was done. So now we're having two separate accounts here. What happened that day? We meet Gus Harris. He was the former Granby mayor. He's also a bus driver. (laughs) And also makes balloon animals at the local hospital. (laughs) They just have a ton of great professions here. I just love it. Men of many hats. And it's like from one spectrum to the other. Yeah, it's from one side of the spectrum to the other. Yes. Now, he had been a school bus driver for 50 years. Cody had been a good friend for a long time, and they had been to many auctions together. And he remembers that nothing significant even happened at this auction and that Cody didn't really participate in it. And he wasn't paying attention to Marv at all. And again, he recalls the same thing Cody did, that they just ended up leaving when the auction was over. Patrick explains that the way Marv characterized the town and the people in the town did not reflect who they really were. So he had a different view on what was maybe reality. Mm -hmm. Again, I think Trish said it best when she said that she didn't realize how distorted his thinking was. I really do think the way he thought was a little bit different than everyone else and and maybe what reality really was. Well, yeah, he didn't grow up here. Right. I mean, he grew up in South Dakota, which let's be honest, that's not like, you know, Chicago or anything like that. But, you know, it could have been slightly bigger than Granby. Right, right. Or or maybe just less isolated. Yeah, yeah. T- totally just different, like a cultural experience, right? Right. We meet Larry and Gary Thompson, and they explain that they've lived in Granby all their life, right? We, we kind of knew that. Their dad started the business back in 1949, and their other brother, Ron, had gotten sick in 2002 and passed away. So now it was it's just Larry and Gary that are left. Patrick says that the popular conception of the Thompson brothers were that they were the hardest working millionaires in the county. They could live off their property and hire people to do the work, but they don't. They choose to work and they actually enjoy it. I think a lot of people who own their own business are like that because you own your own business for a reason, right? Like you have to enjoy it in some sense, especially when you're in a small town like this and it's like a family, like it's something that's like in born in you, right? That you have to work, like it's instilled in you, you like to do it. And some people, I think they feel like, a little worthless if they're not doing work. I was you know say, what else would they do? Yeah. You know, yeah. what else would keep them occupied? Like people, people work their whole entire lives, right? To hopefully retire. Some people still need to stay active though. They need to like have some volunteer job after they quit their job or after they retire because they can't sit at home and do nothing every single day. I would, I, I couldn't. 
Absolutely I'm, not. I'd oh, ha- I, I have to have stuff to do. Can't relate. I would love to do that. I would love to have nothing <sighs> to do and be able to do whatever I wanted to. Well, yes. And have other people do all the work. <laughs> love that but i'd have to have like something something to do i can't, if if i just sat at home every day i'd become the most depressed person you know just oh, well, watching yeah. tv over and over again like well, why I'd would you do that you to do something yeah i know many people that are like that and i i'm not gonna say your names I, but i do and it's it's horrible to watch it's really like a sad lot of that is depression though yeah yeah you kind of get stuck in that rut i think so too have a kid that'll break you out Right. Yeah. My God, you'll have so much shit to do. You won't even know. You won't even know how to follow a TV show. And you won't have any money. So you right. So you will have to learn how to entertain yourself for free. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, Larry Thompson tells us that Marv had an issue with their dad because he had been on the town board. And in the last years of his life, he was the mayor. They had always been friendly to Marv, and one day he drove by them and stated, I'm going to get you guys, and rolled his windows back up and left. That was the last time they ever talked to him. He thinks it all boiled down to politics and that no one had intentionally tried to screw him over. I don't know. I, I'm kind of tossed in the air a little bit with this because I, I feel for Marv being an outsider, right, coming in and literally every single thing that he's wanted to do that he's tried to do has been turned up. Yeah. Not to say that everything he did was in the correct manner. Right. But everything else for everyone who's lived there their whole lives seems to be a lot easier. They kind of get things a little bit easier than everyone else. And so I'm kind of at a toss up a little bit. I feel like they may have been biased to Maybe. certain people to a certain extent. Maybe. At the same time, these are the Thompsons we're talking about. They have put in a fuck ton of time into that town. Sure. Yep. And it may have been a little bit of the you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours yep. type oh, of I'm mentality. Sure. I'm sure. Where they have done enough where they kind of deserve a little bit of a break. Sure. On certain things. Yeah. Where Marv hasn't exactly like proved himself to be that. Yep. You I know agree. what I mean? Life is not fair. It is not fair. <laughs> it is not fair. Patrick believes that Marv really saw in the Thompson family what he himself had aspired to be a relatively wealthy, land-owning man, working hard, making a successful living, doing what he loved to do. And he had asked Marv at one point if he'd like a business story ran and to help buy some advertising for his business. Marv's business was only open like select hours. And Patrick stated that he missed him about two to three times when he would try to show up at the shop to do this little yeah. you know, interview with him. Marv basically ran his business mostly to sustain his passion for snowmobiling. Right. I mean, it's an expensive hobby. Well, and it takes time. Yeah. Like, you want to go snowmobiling for hours. I mean, you need to have the time during the day to do it. So he probably did have strange hours. And it was probably hard for him to get in touch with him. Well, you got to think about it, too. If you're a muffler shop, I mean, how many mufflers are you working on? Right. You know what I mean? So it might be kind of easy to schedule it that way. Right. To stagger them. On the tapes that we hear, Marv claims that Patrick never even showed up for this interview and contributed to his business not growing as it could have. (laughs) This is where, like I was saying in the beginning, that I feel like he's kind of a sad loser. Yep. Yep. Is that I feel like he now looks at everything as being against him when a lot of things are because of him. And I think he doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. 100%. 
if his business is closed, he doesn't want to say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that I missed you. He's like, oh no, you didn't come at the right time. And now you're screwing me over. Yeah. You know, so I think he's just a man that does not know how to apologize or take responsibility for things. Yes. So he doesn't sound much like a man. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so Patrick, out of the goodness of his heart, decides to run a free ad for Marv because of how upset he had gotten over this whole situation. Right. That What a nice gesture. I mean, apparently <laughs> throwing a fit, you know, throwing yourself on the ground, kicking and screaming can get you what you want sometimes. But it didn't really make him that happy. It didn't seem like he didn't no. really explain that or talk about that. Well, this is also a thing about Marv is that he does not give up grudges. No. He holds a grudge. It doesn't matter what you have done to try to make it better. Yeah. You screwed him over once. He will never forget. Nope. We meet another former board member, Casey Farrell. He says that he had felt like that concrete batch plant was a positive thing the whole time, and he really didn't understand how it could have been such a downside to Marv and the muffler shop. The way that Casey thought about it is that it would, you know, help the city grow because you are bringing in more concrete. Concrete mm-hmm. is going to build things. Yep. And then it would supply jobs. So... What about, you know, what was such a big deal about it getting a little bit of dust here and there? I mean, it was a muffler shop after all. It's not clean to begin with. (laughs) But who knows? Maybe the dust getting into the the gears or whatever. There's no gears in a muffler, but you know what I'm saying. Maybe that does cause some type of complication, but whatever. I think... I think it was honestly Marv just throwing a fit. And I think he just didn't want Cody to be next door. Agreed. He didn't like him. He didn't want him to be next door. I think it didn't have, he used the concrete batch plant as like the reason for it, but I don't really think that was the real reason. Well, no. He already had it out for Cody and didn't like him, didn't like him from the first day he met him. They obviously had issues from the beginning, right? Right. Or so he thought. So I I really think it came down to just personal issues with him. Now, Cody had built his concrete business from the ground up. So this wasn't something that was handed to him. This wasn't a family thing that he inherited. He worked his ass off to get this. What a lot of people speculate is that both Cody and Marv were kind of alpha male personalities, which I have a problem with saying that about Marv because he doesn't act like an alpha male. He just throws a fit like an alpha male. Right. I just don't, I don't know. He talks the talk, but he doesn't walk the walk. I would have to agree with that. Yeah. But both of these men seem to be the kind of people that just kind of tell it how it is. Lack of a filter, maybe. Mm -hmm. And we know that Cody worked really hard for what he had. Marv complained all the time about his concrete, even down to the actual concrete itself being just shit. Right. And not even being good concrete, which is like, <laughs> my God. I know. He said that in his tapes, too, that it's yeah. just like, like everything about Cody was bad, essentially. Right. Yeah. Rotten human yep. should not exist. Patrick says that although connecting that sewer can be expensive, Cody connected with it when he built that batch plant right away. Yeah. And Marv could have just hooked up right to theirs to save him that you know, going all the way to the main, right? could have hooked on to Cody's. It would have been, oh my gosh, probably nothing right? to, to actually hook up. Like, cost-wise, it'd probably be nothing. Right. And Cody had called and told Marv that they'd let them attach his sewer to theirs if he would just drop the lawsuit against the town and against the concrete business. 
But Marv just hangs up the phone. Yep. Clearly just stalling on the whole situation, being very stubborn, being a bit prideful. Yeah. And just kind of being a big baby. Yeah, these... Like, these if are, I can't have it my way, I'm not going to have it at all. These can be really bad characteristics. If you can't, if you can't get it, if you can't rein them in a little bit and, and know when you're wrong and apologize for things, shit's not going to go well for you ever. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you just have a negative mindset. He seems like a very negative person. Negative people have negative things follow them. That's just yeah. kind of how the world works. That law of attraction. Yes, it, it, tr- it is so true. Yeah. I know people who are like this and they constantly have bad things happen to them yeah. and they wonder why. It's like, yeah. because you think that life just sucks. Everything yep. about life is horrible. And you know? everything is out to get you. Yes. And it's always against you. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, I, I think he's very much that type of person. So... Yeah, I think he knew this was not going to end well. He he just, he like you said, he was so prideful, he couldn't let anything go. Right. Well, and remember that check that he had written out for yes. the $3,351? So apparently, Marv had made, it wasn't that the amount was wrong per se. He had made a mistake on the verbiage. Yeah. So, of course, we've all seen a check before. <laughs> Where you have to write out the amount yeah. in words, not just numbers. He actually wrote 3350 versus 3350 yep. on the check. And I've had it happen before where somebody has written me a check and mispronounced the verbiage and the bank would not clear it. Yep. They're like, no, because it doesn't match and it has to match. Once he fixed that, the check cleared just fine. So really like wasn't that big of a deal the town was not against him this was the bank right and i think he just yeah when it came back it was just anger that fueled him he didn't even need to know why no he just needed to like voice his opinion and get pissed off and yell at whoever he could right because i think he yelled at the clerk or something and she's like what what i'm just here i'm just the middle person i don't even know make the rules (laughs) sorry yeah he goes a little above and beyond all the time And basically, I feel like his anger kind of clouds his recollection of events in a lot of cases throughout this documentary. It was also believed that Marv felt he had been milked by his attorney for money and then had just been abandoned for an appeal on his lawsuit Mm -hmm. that he wanted to go through with. Yeah. Go figure. Go figure. It's just if Marv doesn't get his way, then those people are out to get him. That's how it seems to be. If he doesn't get it the way he wants to get it, you're out to get him. Yeah. You know, that's that's his whole philosophy on life. And Patrick brings up the point, if his attorney wanted to, quote unquote, milk him, why not go to the appeal and make another $55,000 off of the man? Right. I mean, seriously. Yeah. A to B to C here, right? Where you don't have to go from A to Z. Yeah. We can take steps mm-hmm. that make sense. Now, the irony about this whole situation is that Cody Docheff had actually been trying to buy Marv out of this property that he owned from the very beginning. Dick Brody tells us that Marv put a price on his property of $250,000. So remember, he bought it for forty. Mm-hmm. He's selling it at six times what he paid. Right. Cody accepts this, this amount. Marv immediately backs out <laughs> and ups the price to three hundred and seventy-five thousand. Yeah, go figure. Cody agrees to pay again, which is shocking. 
Because I don't know if I would at this point. That's a big jump. $125,000 when yep. he already said he'd sell it to you for two fifty. dollars Now he's going up another $125K. That's a lot. Yeah. Well, Marv again backs out. He's setting the amount. The guy agrees mm-hmm. and he decides, oh, never mind. Yep. So really, Dick wonders, why did he choose this path? Why was he constantly doing this to himself? Because he cannot reconcile or admit to himself that he's wrong. Like, he can't. Yeah. He's not wrong about anything. No. He's right about every single thing. They are out to get him. He can't turn back now because he's already done all this, right, up to this point. He can't turn back at this point, even though he knew, here's my way out. I can make money back. I'll have enough money. I can leave. I can move out of this town and go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. He was already in too deep at this point. He needed to stay angry. He needed to make sure that his point was made, that he was right, and they weren't. And, yeah, that's where all the downward spiral happened. Now, Casey Farrell, that one board member, comes back and says that, you know, Marv's issues that he brought up about the batch plant did actually give the board some things to consider that they hadn't even thought about. Yeah. So they would bring these things up to Cody, like the dust, the excessive noise, the excessive traffic that would be brought into this area, which was also semi-residential as well. And Cody would promise immediately to take care of the issue. So Casey's whole recollection of this back and forth was that it felt like a pretty good compromise had been made. Yeah, because they had conditions set out that, you know, he had to abide by these if he had this bash plan or if he created it. And Cody didn't have a problem with it. But, of course, Marv wasn't getting his way. So he wasn't happy either way. It didn't didn't matter. Because, again, it wasn't the batch plan. It was Cody getting his way. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) What do you bet Marv was bullied by a kid named Cody? (laughs) That's how this whole thing happened. Yep. And you know why? You know why this happened? Because Cody didn't get spanked as a child. (laughs) And neither did Marv. (laughs) They probably actually did. (laughs) It all comes back. They probably did. They probably get... They probably had to go pick out their own switch. Yes, exactly. (laughs) They didn't get spanked enough. There we go. There we go. But again, as we've kind of brought up several times, Patrick reiterizes the fact that Marv's assumption that there was this group, you know, or a group of leaders in the community constantly conspiring to keep him from moving forward just because he was the new guy was just patently untrue. Mm -hmm. Like, it did not hold up no matter how you looked at it. Yep. We're now at summer 2002, and Patrick tells us that Marv had went to California to bid on this Komatsu D355 bulldozer and got it at a really great deal. This is a, it's huge. Oh, yeah. Gigantic. Gigantic bulldozer. bulldozer. Huge. And he stuck it on a flatbed and had it driven back to Granby being delivered in July of 2002. Many of the townspeople saw him unloading that bulldozer during the night, which kind of seems strange to them. But again... Who knows? It, it, he's driving through the night to get it home. So I don't think that's whatever. strange at all. No, because if it's, he's at an auction in California and he's driving back, he's not going to stay there with his dozer at a hotel like he's coming or home. Or like wait until morning. What if he's yeah. renting the truck that's right. bringing it over? Yeah. I think these people were honestly just reading into it. Because I think so. Like, oh, my gosh. He was being all <laughs> secretive about it. But he wasn't. And not at the beginning. No. He wasn't. Because we find out that Marv ended up parking the dozer on an access road to his muffler shop. So the blade was facing out on this dirt road where he put up a for sale sign. 
And it sat there from 2002 to 2003. So for a full, over a year, it sat there. Right. With a for sale sign on it. Right. Drawing attention. Right. Stuart thinks that he parked the dozer there just to make Cody nervous as like an intimidation factor. I'm like, oh, wow. What an intimidation factor. I mean, he didn't run it, you know. Again, they're reading into that. I, I'm like, much. that seems that seems interesting. But Patrick goes on to say that he essentially was the victim that was just reacting against all these people that have done him wrong in the past. Right. And Marv's allegations were that the town had ruined his business, but the town had not done anything to shut him down. He still had access to his property, but Marv had decided to shut down his muffler shop completely and put it up for auction. Now things are already starting to kind of come together here. Mm-hmm. He's selling his things off. He already has this like kind of plan in his mind. We're, we aren't sure what it is yet at this point, but we can all assume, obviously. Right. Marv says on his recording at one point that he had hoped that someone would catch him and this whole thing would have been stopped before he could have went through with it. Really, Marv? Is that really what you wanted? He says it so many times. So though. many times that throughout Clearly, the rest. it was a sign because it was, I was never stopped. I think it was his validation to say that this is really God yep. telling him that he needs to do this because not a single person stopped him before he could, you know, terrorize this whole entire town. No, he was very delusional. For sure. Now, Patrick tells us that Marv had conducted the auction of all the materials in his shop. Included in the auction was this bulldozer. So... He was trying to sell it. Why would you buy it just to sell it immediately? I was kind of wondering the same thing. So did he have the idea already to do this to the town? He was hoping someone could buy it from him so that he could just move on with his life? Or like what what was the premise behind even buying it in the first place if he was trying to just sell it right away? Well, and I kind of wonder because like everybody around him was all doing like construction. Could he have bought it hoping that like maybe Cody would buy it? For the concrete business, or maybe the Thompsons would buy it for their excavating. I don't know. And maybe he could upcharge it a lot where he's making a a really good profit or something. Who knows? Right. Marv was telling us on his recording that he was willing to take $33,000 for it, but no one would bite, so he just kept the dozer. He had this property up for auction for $450,000 now. So again, it went up again in price, and there wasn't one bid, so he was left with his property and his dozer. This made it even more clear to him that this is what needed to be done. Trish said that she had stopped smoking for nine years but started sneaking them, and Marv didn't like that. They got into an argument about it, and that's when things went downhill and they stopped seeing each other. So this is before he started the construction on the dozer. They had stopped seeing each other. And maybe this was Marv's way of getting her out of his life, right? Maybe. Because I feel like she probably was doing this a lot as a former smoker. You kind of do sometimes sneak cigarettes here. Oh, and there. you think nobody knows? Yeah, and they nobody clearly do. Smells it on me, and who knows? I don't. I don't know if that really was Marv's issue. Right? Was Trisha's smoking? It probably was his way to be like, okay, we need to break up, and this is this is the reason. Even though it's a strange reason, but this is the reason because he already had his plan set in his mind, and he was starting to put it into motion. Yeah. We're now at fall of 2003, and Patrick says that Marv was still perplexed about what to do with his property. Travis Bussey and his partner were owners of this trash company, and they had negotiated with Marv to lease his two acres as a staging place for their trucks. We meet Travis Bussey, and he said he was trying to look for a more commercial-type area that had a garage that he could keep his trucks in during the winter, and Marv's building was perfect. Of course, nothing was even 
right. happening on that yeah. property. So, yeah, it was perfect. And just for storage for a truck? Right. Perfect. Right. Marv tells us that he finds that the dozer is just two inches shorter and one inch narrower than the door. So he decides to bring it inside so he can build it the way that he needed to. It was, again, just another indication from God that he was supposed to continue with his criminal idea. There's so many signs from God to this man. I just, I think he needs validation. No, he does. And in his own delusional mind, he needed this validation for whatever reason to say like, okay, he's telling me to do this. It's not just me thinking it. God's actually making sure that I can complete this task in order to take everyone down. Yeah, He's taking out all the obstacles that should be there. At one point, Travis offered Marv $400,000 for the land and Marv agreed to sell it to them. Within 24 hours, Travis had hooked up to water and sewage to the property. Hmm. (laughs) Weird. Now, Travis says that they had purchased it, but Marv had back rented the building that he was building the dozer in. So there was a section of the building that Marv was actually now renting from Travis. Right. After he sold it to him. Marv states in his recording that this was the first time he was going to do it their way, behind their backs and in secret. He spent 2003 in that building, basically living there to get that dozer ready. Marv had built a little shelter for himself in that building, complete with a cot, TV, a hot plate, and water so he could work on this dozer 24-7. You mean the water that (laughs) Travis Bussey put in there? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Okay. Continue. Just needed to say that. Just needed to, you know, point that out. <laughs> Marv. <laughs> he had brought in all sorts of tools and heavy machinery to help in getting this dozer ready. He had this lift brought in that would help him lift up these heavy sheets of metal so he could weld them in place. He had half inch thick steel. He would put spacers in and add another layer of the steel plate. And between that, he would pour concrete. So he basically had two steel plates where he'd fill in concrete in between them. So he had that extra barrier. He already knew he was going to get shot up and he needed as much protection as he possibly could get. Yeah, this guy should be working for military engineering in their tanks. Okay, you guys have to watch this documentary and see the footage of this goddamn thing. It is insane. Yeah. Insane. I still don't even know how he got inside. We still don't even know how he figured out a way to get inside without having a door. I honestly think he kind of welded himself in. He had to have, right? Yeah. So weird. Oh, my gosh. It is insane. It's actually insane. Yeah. Because I don't think he had any intention of ever coming out. No. So it didn't need a door. Nope. And he didn't want people to get in, obviously. Right. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't like a tank that we normally see where it has like, you know manhole on the top right that you can shimmy in and out nope it was completely enclosed flat yep yeah he would work on the dozer at night and sleep during the day but you still would have thought that somebody would have known what was going on down there i mean no one gave a shit about marv no one was friends with marv how would they know what he's doing no one gives a shit i mean that statement was a little interesting because larry thompson had said it but i just was a little perplexed by that because he didn't have friends So no one would know what he's doing. Right. And Marv knew when the trash people left work for the day. And that's when he'd start working. He was very methodical about what he did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he had surveillance cameras outside of his shed. Right. To show the comings and goings of people on the property. So he knew exactly 
when Travis's crew was no longer on the grounds. Exactly. Patrick explains that Marv knew he would be spending long periods of time in that shed, so he had a small video collection in there with him as well. One movie he had in there with him was a Vin Diesel movie called A Man Apart. It's basically about the hero of the movie losing his wife to a gang of criminals, so he has to take the law into his own hands and shoots up all the bad guys. The movie ends with him alone, but he was able to redeem and purify the corrupt society. So essentially exactly what Mar is planning on doing or wants to do. Right. But it doesn't, I don't know if he realizes that that's not real. Like, it is a movie. (laughs) It's not real. He must have some of a hero complex as well. Right. How can you be a hero and a victim at the same time? Yeah. Again, very skewed, very delusional. Yeah. I can't even. So Travis goes on to tell us that obviously when they purchased the property, they had to put insurance on all the buildings. Sure. And they needed to do a walkthrough of the building that Marv was in, and they found this huge object with a tarp over it. In Marv's recordings, he says that he made up this story about this professor perfecting a cooling system, which would cool the air and increase the performance of the engine. So the story was complete bullshit, but they bought it. So basically that he was creating this cooling system for this professor at this school or something. He literally made it up probably off the top of his head. Yeah. Because they never looked. Well, they and, never tried to see. Well, and why would they? If somebody told me that, I'd be like, wow. Oh, okay. Great. Okay, I'm leaving. Moving on. Yep. See, I, we have me, more to do. Right up over my head. Well, and Marv even says that it was right under their noses. How do they not catch it? Again, another solidification that this is supposed to happen. God is telling me I need to do this, even though they came in, they saw it. They never tried to like take the tarp down. Also, holy shit. Does he have that tarp on hand? That had to be a gigantic tarp. I pictured multiple tarps. I was going to say, because that this thing is massive. You guys, it is so big. Patrick now starts telling us a little bit more about Marv's life and that Marv had really succeeded in Granby. He bought that property for $42,000 and was able to sell it 10 years later for $400,000. 10 times what he paid for it in just 10 years. Right. That is a lot of money to make. quite the appreciation. Now, Marv even stated in his tapes that his muffler business was successful. He could have his fun snowmobiling while still being able to afford to live comfortably. There was a small blurb that I wanted to mention in Marv's recording where he stated that he took the winter before off, so maybe something would come up to change his mind about moving forward with his plan. Right. So he was hoping maybe to clear his mind, maybe to see if he was reading things wrong. Who knows, right? Yeah. Well, maybe get out of, you know, that shed. Right. Right. Get on his sled, go out on the trails, clear up, you know, find himself again. Yep. Just maybe reset, right? Like people need to reset sometimes, especially when you're doing something like this. I can assume not only is it time consuming, but what it does to your mind and your brain, especially when you know it's like a crime. And like, he doesn't seem like a guy who would want to commit crimes, right? It doesn't seem like he's, he he seems like a pretty straight laced guy, but people fucked him over. So he needed to like get revenge, right? So I can assume that's, that's pretty hard on you mentally, Oh, yeah. When you're doing something like this and you need some, even though apparently was getting all this validation, right, that he needed to do it. But he still probably was iffy about it because he's like, do I really want to do this? Well, because I feel like internally it goes against his character of who he is at the core. Exactly. Yeah. 
Now, Patrick Brower tells us, in March of 2004, Marv's dad dies. Marv went to the funeral and took photos, which was a little eerie. Yeah, why do people do that? I, who takes photos of dead people in their caskets? Oh, my God. I mean. No, it's weird. It is weird. It is weird. I can see where pe- why people would do it, right? It's the last memory you have. And no, it's weird. Have it, you been to an open casket funeral? They don't even look like themselves. I know. And they're wearing way too much makeup. I know. They don't look normal. Why would you want that? I wouldn't want that. No, I know. It's It, it was interesting. I was more surprised that we didn't see a selfie of him with his dad I know. behind him. So we didn't, I, I don't know, he probably took more photos that they didn't want to show. Maybe you're right. They were, what, what was really weird is all the siblings, so all of him and his two brothers and sister, were standing in front of the casket smiling. Taking a photo Taking with a photo. their dead father's corpse. It that was weird. Like, I mean, they looked like they were at a party, not yep. at their dad's funeral. And I'm like, I don't, I mean, maybe smile a little bit, but don't like be all like mm-hmm. teeth. I like what is, what? Alcohol must've been involved. I. It was really weird to me. I don't it know. It was weird. But there was one selfie that he took outside his family farm in South Dakota. And it was a sad looking photo. Like, I don't know if I felt like it was really sad I don't know. It was hard to read his face. And they he looked ke- old. They kept popping the image up constantly throughout this documentary. And it's a close up of his face. It sure is. It's real close. It almost looks like he was crying. Well, mind you, a little this bit. was a selfie before there were selfies. Right. Right. This is on an actual camera. In this 2004, is not on a phone. we had brick phones. Yes. Nokia's. Yeah. They didn't right. even take pictures. Right. Before all this, he had given all of his proceeds from the sale and all of his material items to his father. So before his father died, right. he had given his father everything that he had to his name. And he did this very methodically as well. He had a reason for this. Yeah. Now, in his recording, Marv stated that money meant nothing to him anymore. He had given it all away, including his house, his cabin, and his snowmobiles. So basically everything he loved. But again, he had a reason for doing this. Right. Marv had transferred the proceeds of the property sale in $50,000 increments. Prior to his father's passing, his dad had allocated those proceeds of Marv's to his brothers and sisters. Yeah, so he was keeping it in the family. Yep, absolutely. Patrick explains that by giving them to his father and his siblings, it was one big step removed from Marv. This was done on purpose, so when the town tried to come after him to pay for the damages he was about to bring on the town, it would be near impossible to get anything from him because he wouldn't have anything left. Yeah. Everything would already be gone. It'd be zero. Yeah. And they can't go after the siblings. I mean... They had nothing to do with it. No, they had nothing to do with it. And I I mean, okay, that's pretty fucking genius. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's pretty fucking smart. So you know that Marv's not a dumb guy. No. He, He had all of this really, really thought out Yep. well before he did it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was not a snap decision. Not at all. Trish comes back and says that at the time she was working for a dentist, they did a crown prep on Marv, and he was supposed to come back that Friday to get the permanent crown put in. She remembers telling Marv that he needed to get out of Grand County. He hugged her and told her that she was the best thing that ever happened to him in Grand County. And it's crazy for her to think that he already had this thing planned and he was going to do it just three weeks later. 
Matt Reed, that younger snowmobile rider, tells us that he had went snowmobiling with Marv a month before it happened in early May. They had made plans to do it again in June. He had even spent a couple weeks in Florida with some of his friends. And this was probably like his, he knew that this was his last hurrah to kind of like say goodbye to people in his own way, like people that he cared for, but not really say goodbye to them. Pretend that he's still making plans, pretend that they're still going to be able to do more things. But in his mind, he knew he wasn't making it out alive. He wasn't going to spend time in prison. He wasn't going to do this. Like the whole ending was that he was going to be gone and the town could get nothing from him. Right. And they'd have to reconstruct with their own money. Yeah. What kind of they like screwed him out of or what he thought they screwed him out of. I would say quite a bit more than that. Quite a bit more. I'm sure it was multi-millions of dollars to, to fix this town. For sure. Crazy. Yeah. Marv tells us in his recordings that he was at peace with his decision. He knew this was not what he deserved, and that's what it came down to. Everyone else was guilty, and they needed to pay. We're now on that fateful day of June 4th, 2004. This is basically the day I graduated high school. Was it really? It's fucking close if it's not the actual day. Wow. Oh, and we do find out something else, too, about this at the end. Yeah. That's Which kind of I don't news. remember that either. I but, don't know. But again, I, I was 18. I wouldn't have even cared. Nope. So the next thing that we see is reconstructed footage of this bulldozer busting through a shed and then a 911 call being made. Yeah. So in this documentary, it's a little confusing. They do a reconstruction on some things. Yeah. And then they have actual footage. And you can tell. Yes. You, you can, can tell, tell the, the difference. difference. But yes, they do a little bit of both, which yeah. is. I think pretty awesome. It gives you a better idea of what it actually looked like or could have possibly looked like in reality. Yeah. So we hear this 911 call and we hear a woman say, this is Sherry at the trash company. There's a bulldozer over at Mountain Park Concrete destroying their building. And the 911 operator says, is anyone on it? And Sherry responds by saying, yeah, it's all encased in metal and you can't see who's driving it or anything. Cody Docheff says he gets a call on the radio and ran over to see this big bulldozer heading for the batch plant. He had grabbed a handgun from one of his workers and was told to, quote, be careful, it's loaded. In which case, I want to be like, well, it fucking better be. What are you why doing walking he, around with an unloaded gun anyway? Why would he need it then? Why would he grab it if it was unloaded? He's very good at throwing. <laughs> he was just going to walk over and pistol whip him. <laughs> so Cody points the gun at the dozer and fires off two shots. Clearly... Nothing is going to... No. That's a handgun, Cody. Get your shit together, Cody. Mm -hmm. Oh, we'll see. They try a lot of things that do not work. He says that there's a sound in the air of the squealing from the diesel engine and then the treads crunching all over the ground. And it's all accompanied by the sound of a building being demolished. Almost like you're just tipping over like a cereal box on your counter. I mean, it looked... That easy. Oh, yeah. Like, not gonna lie, kind of makes me want to see what it's like to just run through a building with a bulldozer. It looked pretty cool just to see how quickly they go down. Oh, It did not take much at all with this dozer. Cody and his crew knew that they needed something to try to stop this bulldozer. So they decided that the best and easiest way to do this would be to somehow lodge like a piece of steel into the tracks so that it would basically like catch and it wouldn't be able to move forward anymore. I mean, it sounds like a good plan. That's pretty conceivable. However, they were not able to make it work. They were 
running in this like large piece of steel and it just wasn't working. Cody tried at one point to climb up the back of the vehicle, but he kept sliding off. He said it was almost as if it had been like greased or something, which I could see Marv doing that, to be honest. I mean, he really thought all of this through. Right. There was only one thing that stopped him. Yeah. I I don't know if he would have been able to be stopped if that one thing that we'll get to happened. I I think I think he would have been able to go and tell. I mean, he did have came home. Yep. Well, he did have some engine issues, but who knows? Who knows how long he could have went, right? Yeah. We meet another one of Granby's sheriff deputies. His name is Jim Craker. He says that he began getting calls around about 2.15 p.m., and he was approximately a mile away from where everybody was claiming this was happening. So he grabs a shotgun and yells for the dozer to stop, but of course it doesn't. Then he sees a front-end loader coming around the corner of the building on this property being operated by Cody Dochev. So Cody gets this front-end loader, and he's trying to get underneath the back of the bulldozer to lift it up and to basically, like, stall it from moving. Well, okay, Cody. Cute idea. Real cute. (laughs) You're basically using a forklift. To a monster truck. Right. Like it's not working. No, it actually did the opposite effect. It did the opposite. So Cody (laughs) tried to raise him up, but it was so heavy that it actually lifted Cody up off the ground. (laughs) And at one point, he only had one tire. Yep. One tire touching the ground. The other one is three feet up in the air. Yep, exactly. So at one point, Cody backs up and he tries to then instead just hit the bulldozer. But I mean, it's a fucking rock. Yes. Right? Like rock meat hard place this is where cody's head actually hits the windshield and he ends up blacking out he doesn't even remember the rest of what happened and they don't realize how well it's actually made yet right all they're seeing is the outside steel which i mean looks pretty tough oh yeah impressive enough they don't realize that there's cement and then more steel behind that before it even gets inside like they right. have no clue how or to what extent he actually went in building this and, and how, right. again, methodical he was. Right. However, when Cody did hit the bulldozer, it did shake it enough that Marv must have felt it because that's when he started letting out rounds of a 50 caliber rifle that he had pointed out the back of this thing. Oh, my gosh. Numerous rounds were shot into the bucket of Cody's front end loader which was obviously like the scooping part. Yep. Luckily, nothing hit him at all, but it did make him back off. I mean, good on you, Cody. Well, because I think they realized, they didn't realize he'd have firearms as well, like firing back at them. They thought he was just trying to like destroy some stuff. That definitely changed the, the game a little bit. A little bit. At this point, officers are showing up left and right, and they're beginning to surround the place. Deputy Craker transitions from the shotgun that he had in his hand to an M4 rifle and was joined very shortly by some other state troopers. Cody Dochev believes that the dozer was being radio controlled by Marv Haymeyer. So he knew Marv was behind it, but he just did not think that it was being personally operated. And he had speculated that on one of the nearby hills, Marv must have been up there kind of like remote controlling this bulldozer all over the place that seems to me that seems really far-fetched i mean 
That is a huge piece of machinery. How the hell is he radio controlling that and seeing what the hell's happening from that far away? Right. Did he think he was magic or something? Like, it, it was, was odd. Weird. But it was probably because he was, you know, <laughs> it, it was on he, the spot. He was trying to think, you know, like, what the hell could be. He also had know. a head injury at this point. <laughs> That's true. Right? <laughs> he was so just knocked just, out. He's just thinking weird <laughs> shit at this point. Now, Patrick says that the dozer continues its path of destruction, knocking down all of the sidewalls of the concrete plant. Again, more police are showing up on the scene. I mean, really, at this point, I don't think they knew what the fuck they were going to do, but they needed as much backup as possible. And I think a lot of them were like, "Okay, I need to fucking see this. I need to see what this looks like in real life. Like, what are they talking about? Like, a bulldozer is just out and about and has metal on it. Like, okay, really? And then when they actually saw it, they're like, holy shit. And every single one said it looked or resembled more of like a tank than a bulldozer. Right. We meet Sheriff Deputy Rich Garner. He tells us that he could hear all of this commotion, but he couldn't see anything right away. So he was hiding in an irrigation ditch, finally got a good look at the dozer, but it looked more like a tank, like you just said. He actually says that it was more of a huge black monstrosity, like a World War I big boxy tank Mm -hmm. that we would see in like old videos. But he thought, you know, how would you attack something like this? How do you stop Mm -hmm. something like this? He was the designated marksman of this whole operation and just began shooting, trying to aim for the viewport as best he could because somebody's got to be behind it. Jim Craker comes back on and tells us that they were trying to aim for all of the small little portholes on the side of the tank as well. However, they were only like two inches by four inches big. So that's a very small spot to be aiming for. And again, they were speculating that these were holes that led inside. I mean, they really didn't know because, again, they're kind of far enough away that they see them. They don't want to get too close, though, just in case they were to get hit or something, right? I mean, you can typically see on the side of a dozer, and it can't really do much to you. But right. that's what they were speculating, that they were portholes to actually gain entrance. But right. they weren't. No, no. <laughs> but while they're shooting at these little portholes, they also realize that they are also more protected than just these little holes, right? So they were wondering how... Could Marv possibly be inside driving this thing? It's not giving him any way to see. Rich Garner comes back on and says that there were suddenly then two rounds of ammunition that go right by his head. More rounds are being fired at police who are also hiding behind these Jersey barriers. Our undersheriff, Glenn Trainer comes on and says that the shots were having no effect at all from them to Marv. Marv starts heading towards the barrier, which had been concealing three police officers. Luckily, all three of them were able to dodge a bullet and bulldozer at Mm -hmm. that moment. But Glenn parked his unmarked vehicle on the south side of the building. Marv went right towards it and began pushing it sideways until eventually it just flipped the vehicle over and he rolled right over top of it. Like it was nothing. Like it was nothing. It's so crazy. I mean, they didn't have actual footage of this, but you see the car after it's flipped over and like it's nothing. Yeah. It is so crazy. Yeah. At that moment, Glenn realized that Marv was not going to stop at just the concrete plant. 
So at that moment, when he starts to see the bulldozer moving towards the highway and going towards town, he puts out the info to have all the other officers evacuate everybody from the town, get them out of there. Glenn, at this moment, also had the idea to try to climb on top of the bulldozer and see if he could gain entry from the top. He expected to see like a door, but it was solid sheet metal. There was nothing, no way for him to get in or out. I cannot imagine that like reaction and that like, holy shit, what do we do now? Yeah. We don't even know how this is being operated. We don't know how to gain entry. We can't clearly stop with bullets. That's not working. We don't have something that is this size that can stop it. You know, like I can't imagine like the thought process of like, Holy shit. It might just keep going. We might not be able to stop this. Right. What he does see, though, is like an RV air conditioning vent. And he tries to shoot his pistol into that to see if maybe, you know, it's going towards the inside. Eventually, the police decide to start dropping flashbangs down into the exhaust. So, you know, they would throw up these like they look like grenades, basically. Mm -hmm. Up to Glenn, Glenn would then drop them into the exhaust pipes and, you know, there'd be a loud boom, lots of smoke, nothing else. It's supposed to disorientate the enemy's senses. So like the eyeballs, because there's a really bright flash of light and then a really, really loud bang to hurt their ears. Right. So hopefully they'll stop what they're doing. It did nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Now they notice that the bulldozer is headed for a small industrial area known as Mountain Parks Electric. Marv takes his time. He spends several minutes going in, backing out, going in, backing out, destroying this building each time. Completely leveling it. Yeah. And next up was Granby Town Hall. The biggest problem, though, as we find out, is that the building for the town hall wasn't just for the town hall. In fact, The street level part of this building was actually the public library, and upstairs was where the town hall was. We meet Tess Riley. She's the librarian, and she says that she could hear what she thought was gunfire and sirens. And, you know, of course, when you hear something like that, immediately she's thinking that they should barricade themselves inside the building. Right. As you would normally do under circumstances such as this. But a reverse 911 call came through to them telling them to evacuate the building immediately. Thankfully, this bulldozer doesn't go very fast. <laughs> yeah, It's a little heavy. It doesn't, it's a go, little heavy. It doesn't go fast. Glenn Trainer says that the bulldozer gets off of the highway and goes right into the lawn area of the town hall, where he decides he's going to jump off. Patrick Brower comes back and says, Marv goes around to the back of the building, destroying the children's playground that was in the back side of this library. Mm -hmm. He explains that the jungle gyms and swing sets were turned into curled, twisted metal spaghetti all over the yard. Tess Riley, just so that you're aware, made sure that all of the children had been brought home safely prior to any of this happening. So there was nobody there at the building. Thankfully, no humans got hurt in all of this. And at that point is when she heard on the radio that he had just torn apart Town Hall. Rich Garner also explains at this point that they had a rolling roadblock in front of the Mm -hmm. bulldozer, 
and patrolling units on either side. So, I mean, think about any war movie you've ever seen yep. where you have a bulldozer. Well, I mean, not, not a bulldozer, a tank. Yep. Going down the street, and then you've got military flanking yep. both sides, that's right? Exactly on what foot. it was, yeah. That's exactly what this looked like. That's when an officer notices a camera sticking out of the back of the bulldozer. Soon enough, they were able to locate five cameras sticking out of the shell and realize that this is how Marv was seeing and being able to steer this giant bulldozer. I find it interesting that they didn't even think of that to begin with. It's you 2004. Know, I mean, you know. They had brick phones. Well, I, you know that he's not seeing out physically. He has to be seeing out some way. The only other way you can do that is with a camera. But maybe that's why they thought it was being remote controlled. Because there was no way that somebody could be seen sure. outside of it. So maybe that's the only reason why they thought that, even though it, that makes it seems kind of far-fetched. It like does. It, said. Seem, it seems weird. But maybe that was how they were, came to that conclusion, where they were like, this dude has no fucking windows. Right. You how know? can how can he actually see where he's going? Right. And make it there correctly. Right. They do come to find out that all of these cameras were mounted to three monitors inside of the cab, and that Marv had actually known that there was going to be debris and had rigged different hoses carrying compressed air to blow off the camera lenses every so often to make sure that he was still able to see where he was going. Okay, that is literally incredible. Right? How do you how do you think of that shit ahead He's of time? He's a mechanical mind. That is just I'm not crazy. a me- I'm not mechanically inclined at all. No. <laughs> but mechanically inclined people think about that shit. I mean, he really he really thought of everything. Oh yeah, when he was building this. Totally did. We meet one of the investigators for the sheriff's department, Leo Pachaki. He explains that he had heard the commotion on the police radio and immediately grabbed his camcorder to document the scene. Oh, for sure. He said that he followed the entire scene until they got to the Sky High news station. Patrick gets a phone call and is told to get out of the building as he was, quote, on the list. (laughs) holy shit oh my god how terrifying on what list what list (laughs) soon after the bulldozer knocks down the front of the building while he and a co-worker are running out of the back of the building oh my god ceilings are caving in all around them he begins to hear gunfire and the building crashing down around itself but marv was not finished because next up was the thompson property And the Thompson brothers weren't about to leave their property. They were told by police, get out of here. And they were like, hell to the no. We are standing (laughs) our ground. This is our land. But they were worried about their elderly mother who lived on the property. Yep. So they did run to her and tell her she needs to get in her car and leave town. Get out of the house. It's at this point that Rich Garner, that uh, marksman that we met a little bit earlier has the chief of police show up and tells him that he's got a surprise for him in the backseat of the car. He takes a peep, and there's a 50 caliber silhouette gun in the back seat. He hands it to Rich. Rich picks it up and begins shooting at the bulldozer. Unfortunately, nothing penetrates this fucking thing. Not even close. Not even close. Larry tells us that he was on their street and was knocking down some trees before running right through their mother's house. 
Thelma Thompson had been asleep only 30 minutes before Marv destroyed the home, but she did make it out safely, thankfully. Jeez. So completely almost leveling this house right. with this bulldozer. Because it wasn't, it was like a small rambler. It was a rambler, yeah. Yep. Now, he next went to destroy a construction yard owned by the Thompsons. He is not finished with the Thompsons yet. Oh, God, no. He has just started. Yeah. Well, and they own everything. They probably right. owned a lot of the company oh, for or sure. the land that he already demolished. For sure. Larry Thompson states that Marv next turned and headed for the Thompson shop and ran right through it. He went back to the front of the building and shoved an XL energy truck right through their rental building. Oh, my gosh. It was completely crushed. It, it was so crushed. It was crazy. Like the bed of the truck and the front of the truck were like smushed in a V yeah. together. It yeah. was crazy. Yeah. There are people everywhere watching this. Of course. Lots of curious people wondering what the hell is going on. And they're kind of like on hills and stuff. So they're far enough away, but they can see all of this happening. Oh my God. I would have been that person. For sure. And it, as you can imagine, all the news helicopters were flying around and it, it really looked like a war zone. They they did like a a fly up image that they yeah. that they caught on camera, and it looked like there was war going on because these buildings are just demolished everywhere. Yeah, he then headed towards Independent Gas, and we hear radio alerts going out about the propane tanks that were at this location, wanting to ensure everyone was at least a thousand feet away from these tanks in case they were to blow up. And so these are not like standard, normal propane tanks that you'd have at like a normal home. These are gigantic tanks. Yeah, these are industrial sized propane tanks. So like one bullet could easily blow it up. Oh, yeah. All of it. One bullet that penetrates it. So this was like this was a really serious issue now. Also, did you notice that? The footage of the bulldozer at this point is completely covered. Yep. And like concrete. It is full chunks. of concrete. Yep. Yeah. Holy shit. So crazy. I mean, it's like if you were probably up close to it, it was probably at least a foot deep. Yep. I'm sure. And yeah. Oh, God, seeing that, I, I don't even know if I could wrap my mind around the fact that it's real. No. That this is actually happening. No. Like, how in the hell is this happening? And how do we stop this motherfucker? Like, what right. is going on? Yeah. Leo tells us that he had been on a hill watching this, and all he saw were these rows upon rows of huge propane tanks. There were a lot of civilians near this propane tank company as well. Marv starts to shoot at the tanks, and Leo knew that if one of these bullets were to hit a tank, it could ignite it immediately. Because he had that ripper on the back of his tank, it was actually shielding his gun from firing at the propane tanks. Like it wouldn't, it was supposed to like go down farther, but his own sheet metal construction was actually like deterring it. Yeah. From like going down. Yeah. So thankfully he wasn't able to penetrate any of the propane tanks. Right. One of his bullets did, however, penetrate a power transformer, but luckily That wasn't as big of a deal. That wasn't going to cause as much damage as a propane tank would. The county decides they've had enough and they want to try to see if their scrapers will be able to stop him. Glenn tells us that they had asked for a bulldozer, but all they had was a scraper. They didn't have a bulldozer. They tried to stop the bulldozer from getting back on the highway, but it was completely like pushed out of the way. Like it was not hard. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Not even close. It was kind of embarrassing. (laughs) It was embarrassing. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they tried, but like, did they though? I don't know. It, it, he didn't have, it didn't look like he had to try at all. He just literally pushed it out of the way and just kept on going. going. He didn't need to back up. Nope. Nothing. Get a running start. Nothing. Nope. So now Marv, 
is now headed towards Main Street again. Somewhere around this time, Marv loses all of his antifreeze. They see this huge puff of white smoke, which is when antifreeze is essentially hitting the hot engine parts. And while he was trying to reposition his dozer, he damaged copycat printers, which is a building next door to Gamble's store, which is Casey Farrell's store. So he was another one of those board members that, you know, was against him. Yeah. So he was essentially trying to get the Gamble's store, but was trying to fix his engine problem and ran into this other printer store. Right. When Casey heard that Marv was headed for his store, he just got a huge knot in his stomach. Like... A lot of this stuff is what people worked for their whole lives, right. you know, and he knows that it's just going to be completely demolished. And it's it's disheartening and it's sad. You know, it's hard to, like, come to terms with that. Totally. Now, the engine on the dozer started to overheat. Of course, it doesn't have antifreeze anymore. Dick Brody was across the street watching it turn to drive into the side of the Gamble store. And at this point, you can tell he's starting to lose power. So Marv is, he's trying his best to get done whatever he has to get right. done because he knows this isn't going to last too much longer because right. you can't you can't run an engine without antifreeze. Right. Even while all of this is happening to the dozer, he's still able to just tear and rip into the gamble store. Marv starts going down the side of the building to essentially rip off all of it just to just to make it all collapse so if he goes on that side portion it's just gonna all collapse behind him yeah it kind of reminded me of like opening up an envelope like right it just the edge of his bulldozer is just like demolishing that wall exactly now the county still had their scraper and they were able to actually pull up behind the dozer so they could block him from coming out Dick Brody had actually worked at Gambles, so he was one of the few people who knew that they had a basement in Gambles. Yeah. Marv didn't know about the basement, so he had no idea that the right side track of his dozer would get stuck in the basement as he's going down the side. Right. Rich says that this was the first time he was actually stopped and the dozer finally shut down because he couldn't back up anymore. The weight yeah, he was stuck. of that track going into the basement, he literally, he was stuck. Yeah. They were still not sure what he was planning on doing, so they wanted to make sure to keep everyone as far back as possible. They didn't want him to come out open fire or something, right? Because at this point, they feel like it's going to be like a, a gunfight and that's how it's going to end. Right, because what else can he do? He's already been shooting at them and... Yeah, they, they were his bulldozers down. Right, exactly. They started to get pairs of people together to try to get some tactical advantage because they were like kind of surrounding it a little bit to see how to gain entrance again, how to like. Yeah, they don't even know where he's going to come no, out of. They still don't understand that. So they're kind of getting people around to make sure that they have all, you know, guns in case he comes out somewhere. Well, Dick tells us that they did end up hearing a gunshot just a short time after the dozer shut down. Some sheriff's deputies did get back on top of it to try and see how they could get inside. They even had some SWAT teams from other jurisdictions come in, and they started blasting on the dozer. The first blast didn't even put a dent in it. And on the second blast, they still couldn't get in. Yeah. And they're using, like, full, like, heavy artillery type of, like, materials that, like, should be able to get through anything. But because he made it essentially... Indestructible. indestructible on purpose like they couldn't get in their last stitch effort was to bring up a cutting torch and cut into the ac unit access point i feel like that could have been one of the first things they tried i, I don't know i mean it, it seemed it seemed fairly simple for them to get in at that point once they used that right i don't know now they learned that he had put the 
357 into the roof of his mouth and pulled the trigger. And they did show us a picture, which yeah. was interesting. I mean, his head was slumped down. Right. So you couldn't like see anything. But like it was eerie. I mean, it's definitely a dead body. And it was really sad. It was really lonely looking. Yeah. Like it, it was, I felt bad for him in that moment that he knew that this was how it was going to end. And it just was lonely. It was, it was really, really sad. Well, he had God on his side. That's right. <laughs> Trish tells us that all of his snowmobile buddies and herself rode up to the mountain on their sleds to let his ashes fly away. I'm sure that's probably something he would have wanted anyway. Oh, totally. Yeah. We get some on-screen text that states, The June 4th, 2004 incident in Granby, Colorado became a worldwide news event. However, one day later, President Ronald Reagan died and media coverage of the rampage ceased. How crazy. And I don't think we ever heard of it again. No, probably not. I never heard of it. Period. No. Never even knew it happened until this documentary came out. I didn't know either one of those things happened. Right. Exactly. On, that, on those times. I know. You know? Larry tells us that everyone couldn't wait to cut up and scrap that dozer. And all he could think about was, like, let's make a museum out of this thing. Like, this could actually make us some money. Like, I people mean, are going to want to come by and see what this dozer did to our town. You know, the dozer that they saw on news footage and, you know, all these personal footage, right? They cut the whole thing up to shreds because they yep. did not want people, I don't know, making Marv out to be a hero in some sense or... I don't know, making money off the situation. I don't know. They just thought that they didn't want to, like, have that type of publicity in their town. You mean they didn't want to glorify somebody who didn't deserve it? Exactly. Huh. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> just couldn't get it out. That's all right. This was 2004. Back then, they didn't do things like that. Right. Now, we end this documentary with a little saying from Marv on his recording and the end of his recordings. Right. And I quote, this tape's probably got a lot of emotion in it, and anybody listening to it, you need to realize that and just take it from there. Anyway, hey, I hope you all have a great time and a good life. I've had a great life, and I'm going to put this tape and tape recorder in a plastic bag for someone else to try to figure it out. We'll see you later, end quote. And that's how he ends it. I, I was so curious on whether they found that in the tank with him. I know. Or like back at his shed. I feel like... I feel like it was back in the shed. I felt like it was with him. For well, some I reason. feel like it should have been with him. <laughs> right. But right. like, I feel like it probably was back. At the yeah, shed. no. Yeah. Because he probably wanted people to try and find it. Right. He didn't want to just give it to someone and give it up. He wanted, you know, people to try and search for it. Yeah. And that was it. Yeah. That was tread. It's crazy. I mean, completely insane. I think it's really just a great story as to just how far somebody with a lonely mind and a victim mentality and a grudge can go. Yeah. To, like, make things make sense. Yeah. I mean, there. I was a little conflicted. I know he definitely had mental illness of, of some sort. I mean, he just, or he just couldn't accept that he was wrong. And I, I think he just had a big head in that sense. Yeah. There were some things that I, I felt, I felt badly for him. That there, sure. I don't know if it was always fair. But the way he went about it obviously was not correct. Thankfully, no humans were killed. Right. It was just materialistic things and buildings that can always be replaced. And, you know, that's good. Yeah. It's still sad that he felt the need to take his life. I mean, he was only in his 50s. He could have easily lived probably, you know, 30 more years. Right. And so that's a little sad to me. But again, I think just like you said, his victim mentality kind of led him on this path. And he could not ever say that he was wrong. And so that's where it was going to lead him anyway. 
Well, and ironically, what he did was gave Cody Dochev more business. For sure. For his concrete business. Yeah. That's all he did. Because <laughs> he now did. he gets to rebuild the whole town. Yep, absolutely. Fucking nuts. Well, thanks so much for tuning in this week, you guys. We really appreciate you understanding us taking a little bit of time this summer. I'm sure you're all, you know, out enjoying life as much as we are and or preparing for maybe new things in your lives as well. So giving us the opportunity to take every other week off has been pretty great. Not going to lie. Yeah. And I, I, again, it goes so fast. I still only feel like it's a week. No, same. (laughs) I do too. And it's just because we're busy. But we wanted to make sure that we were still releasing content. We love you guys. We love that you listen to us. We love that you're enjoying it. Um, We definitely didn't want to stop recording for the summer. So we'll make a plan, though, and we'll definitely let you know when we're going to go back full time. Yeah. Every week. Yeah. And we do have the rest of the summer already planned out. So that's helpful as well. So with that being said, our next released episode is actually going to be this one that I just found today. I found it on Hulu. I believe it's an A&E series that is put on there and it's called The Killer Speaks. And we're going to be doing episode one entitled Ice Cold Levi King. And this is interesting. Yeah. It's basically about this guy who must have lived with like rage in his heart his whole life, decides to take out a couple of complete strangers and feels such a sense of release. So stay tuned because I'm interested. And this one's a a little even more different for us because it's not a well-known case. No, I've never heard of this guy before. So... I'm excited to do this one. Me too. Me too. Because a little bit then of a change. you don't have, it's, this, it's not the same big names that we're hearing about. Exactly. And it's already been sensationalized in some way. Keeps things interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we're going to be recording for the next episode. In the meantime, if you'd like to follow us on any social media, please do that. Don't forget to go out there on wherever you are listening to us and write and review. I know it's summer. I know you've got shit to do. But even just, you know, have a couple little drinks and like pop on there and just leave us a rating. Five star, we prefer. Yeah. And leave us a little review. Anything. Anything at all. It can literally just say love you. It and can we literally just say you're the best podcast I've ever listened to. <laughs> That's all it has to say. Okay. You can follow us on Instagram at sheer underscore crime underscore podcast. On Twitter, we are at Sheer Crime Pod. TikTok, we are at Sheer Crime Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook through our Sheer Crime Podcast discussion group. And of course, if you have any requests or shout outs, or maybe you have posted a review, but you think maybe we haven't seen it, because I think we've mentioned a few times that we only really get to see them on Apple. Yep. Go ahead and send that to us through our personal inbox requests at sheercrimepodcast.com stay safe stay sane stay cool and remember never run with scissors bye guys see ya